Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A Bermondsey-led redesign upstaging big money architecture to win critics' hearts. New research reveals the hundreds of billions of pounds needed to retrofit all of the UK's homes. An entire tower block of residents forced to immediately vacate after their building is deemed unsafe. A new report finds Marble Arch Mound architect MVRDV was picked without a contest. And could a rethink on zebra crossings revolutionise our roads? My name is Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist, and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the Lundown. My special guest this week is Jonathan Glancy. Jonathan is an architecture critic and writer. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Merlin. This week saw the community-led redesign of Bermondsey's Blue Market by Hayatsu Architects and Assemble burst into the national press. Profiled by architecture critics in the AJ and Observer, the £2 million project was designed to revitalise the historic marketplace at the centre of the former South East London Docklands and Industrial Area to reconnect it to surrounding neighbourhoods and to increase local footfall. Originating in the 11th century as a stop on the pilgrimage route to Bermondsey Abbey, that's now the site of the popular Bermondsey Antiques Market, the market space, known simply as The Blue, reached its peak in the 1800s when more than 200 stalls lined the square and nearby Southwark Park Road. At the time, it was said you could buy anything and everything down the blue. However, in recent decades, following post-war clearance, declining industry and the closure of the Surrey docks, the market has become more and more fragmented and sadly disconnected from its community. Southwark Council, along with nearby business owners, tasked local firm Hayatsu Architects, they're a practice with a predilection for working with natural materials set up by Japanese architect Takeshi Hayatsu. Um, they tasked them and the Turner Prize winning collective Assemble with overhauling the tired square. Both architects are based in Sugarhouse Studios, a mere five minutes walk from the blue. Um, and from the outset, the aim was to make the project as local as possible. Uh, They had consultation events, community involvement and the incorporation of elements made by local manufacturers and fabricators. The centrepiece of the newly regenerated blue is a glistening pyramid clock tower. 
tiled with embossed tin can lids, uh, referencing Bermondsey's significance as the first place in history to manufacture tins. Um, and certainly, if you go down to the blue and have a look around, um, the clock tower, it really looks like it's been there uh, actually for a very long time, although it's quite new. It kind of just sits elegantly alongside uh, the streetscape. Uh, along with the other interventions that Hayatsu and Assemble have put in there. So um, there's some new benches made from recycled aggregates, uh, oak-framed timber canopies for markets and uh, curved benches and um, murals as well, referencing the local history. But certainly the, the main thing impression you get when you're there is just sort of how natural it all sits in its setting. Um, so, Jonathan, uh, community and council-led regeneration projects come in all shapes and sizes across London. Uh, in recent years, uh, with declining funding due to austerity, uh, we've seen a rise of a kind of technicolour temporary installations across the city, um, uh, you know, with architects turning to brightly coloured paints to make a big impact in streetscape, uh, often without uh, a budget. You know, you're probably quite familiar with these. Uh, could be uh, a crossing on a road, for example, uh, or some kind of defunct premises painted in bright colours. Um, how does this project then, the blue, compare to that wave of kind of rainbow coloured architecture, sometimes dubbed New London Fabulous? I actually enjoy all these little interventions on one level. I think they're playful, they're colourful, they bring a lot of life back into the city. Um, but there is something that I wonder about, and I haven't visited the Blue, so um, my comments have to be taken not with a pinch of salt, but a little bit carefully. But there's one thing I find um, a little bit tricky. I find lots of these interventions a bit um, finickety. They're bits and pieces in a city, and they're very unevenly paced through the city. And what I really li I like in a city, and this might sound very old-fashioned, but I quite like cities to be, physically, quite subfusk, quite um, not austere, and not certainly not bland or banal, never, but quite can be elegant and measured. And then they're frameworks for everything else to happen. So the great circus of the city happens because local authorities, architects, planners, city councils have made uh, spaces and places that will endure for donkey's years so everybody gets to use them, play with them, experiment with them. I mean, is there is there a kind of feeling that sometimes when it comes to commissioning public space interventions and then also designing public space interventions, uh, that it's easier to just sort of go with something fabulous and go with something uh, which is brightly coloured and, and uh, immediately engaging than to do that kind of deeper work of digging into the history and um, forensically referencing uh, local uh, manufacturing or local traditions uh, in, in the actual fabric of the space itself. Is this possibly um, maybe even a bit of classism in the commissioning process where um, there's still a wariness of a, a kind of working class aesthetics uh, and a kind of tendency to gloss over it uh, with something spectacular. Well, that is very interesting. Um, I do think looking at it from a slightly askew point of view from yours is that um, there is a class element involved in this and it's to do with wealthier and poorer parts of the city. Um, you do tend to find, not just in London, but in cities up and down Britain and actually across Europe and other co continents as well, what I would call a slightly um, patronising you know, aesthetics and spaces for people living on you know, much smaller salaries in poorer parts of the city and much grander ones in the sort of usually the west ends of the cities or the equivalent um, where people are much wealthier. I do worry about that 
you know, it's almost like one type of art design architecture for um, the well-off. And it's slightly assumed that people in poorer areas don't need quite the same standards. Obviously, there's an idea that architecture critics go out and write about like the biggest multi-million or even billion pound <laughs> investments and like real you know, big capital architecture. Uh, but actually, here's a really small project commissioned by a council, and it's getting the critical attention of, of the, the architecture writers of our time. Uh, and I'm thinking, what is the significance of this, this kind of shifting the focus onto the small and local? And then also, what could that potentially mean uh, for the people of Bermondsey uh, who might have uh, felt they'd been sort of left out of the story uh, at some stages of London's regenerations and transformations and, and, and now potentially uh, right in the centre of it? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm, this shift to these very small projects in terms of critical attention is excellent and really, really good. It's interesting thinking back over a few years ago, I remember when I was working in the Guardian newspaper, they wanted to do a series about great buildings of the world. And they said, Jonathan, will you, you know, edit that and write chunks of it? And you can't do it all because it's simply too much. And, uh, and I remember the, uh, the sort of supremo, editor supremo in that case, saying to me, the building you've chosen as your greatest building in the world, you know, from the 20th century is Arno's Grove Tube Station. And, uh, and they said, yeah, you can't do that. And I said, well, I can. I'm going to, you know, and stood up for it. And because there you had a small project, but the importance of it is, you know, it connects through history, it connects to classical architecture, it's modern architecture, it's about craft, it's about a particular London suburb that today, you know, is a melting pot for all sorts of Londoners and immigrants to the city, and it's not a wealthy area. And here, sitting there, is actually a little building that is as good as anything you can get anywhere in the 20th century. And I mean that truly and round the world. It's a great architect, Charles Holden. So if you apply that logic and thinking to small-scale projects dotted around parts of the city, I think that's absolutely terrific and they deserve to get the attention. And it's that point in the show where I would like to thank our listeners, our subscribers and crucially everybody who has signed up to support our Flat White campaign. This support that you have given us allows us to keep on making this amazing weekly show for free for everybody. We created London to bring you amazing guest pundits, to review the big stories in London architectural news. And we did it because we think there needs to be more open, honest and clear conversations about what shapes our built environment we called on our listeners to donate the equivalent of one flat white coffee per month it's a really simple thing it makes an enormous difference uh, to support the campaign you can go to open-city.org.uk forward slash flat white it's something which means an enormous amount to us and in the last week three people have signed up uh, so i'm going to read their names this is the highlight of my week uh, we've got alexander long Jane Hill and Deirdre Armsby. Thank you. Our next story is all about Savills, the global real estate consultancy and sales agent, which has this week published new research which unveils the scale of the challenge facing the UK's residential property sector in reaching net zero. Uh, it's been reported in industry publications such as Landlord Today and Scottish Housing News. 
330 billion pounds is what the firm has estimated is needed to implement the energy saving measures UK housing requires in order to meet the energy performance certificate B targets by 2035. Um, just so everyone knows, a B rating means a home is green, uh, but not yet reaching the highest levels of energy efficiency. Um, the sum, that £330 billion, is considerably more than the £1.5 billion that the government previously committed uh, to this task under its abandoned and yet-to-be-replaced Green Homes Grant Programme. Um, that was focusing on updating and insulating the country's housing stock, around 83% of which currently falls below the energy performance rating of B. Um, according to the report, the residential sector is responsible for a fifth of the UK's carbon emissions and a vast majority of that comes from heating. Um, sure, that would be not a surprise to many of us. Um, around 30% of homes in England and Wales built before the Second World War still carry an EPC rating of E or below. Uh, and this figure increases to 47% for those built before 1900. Um, the estimated cost of upgrading a home with an EPC rating of D is £6,472, uh, but with an average annual annual cost saving of just £179 on the energy bills after you did those works, um, it could take your average household about 36 years uh, to pay back that initial investment. Um, that's a calculation which has been done by the English Housing Survey. Um, so among the measures required to bring these homes up to the EPC target standards is things like loft and cavity wall insulation, double glazing, replacing gas boilers, um, as well as smaller steps such as using low energy light bulbs and draft proofing. Um, now, interestingly, Savile suggests that grants and green finance initiatives alone, uh, this is the sort of things that have been available so far, those are unlikely to facilitate the investment in energy efficiency needed to meet the government's very own targets. Uh, it sort of raises the question that maybe a major state-led investment might be the only way forward. Um, the potential need for a radical way forward is also compounded uh, by some other recent survey results published in City AM this week, uh, which showed that less than half of the UK population is willing to pay higher taxes in order to achieve green targets. Um, so, Jonathan, what's this all about? £330 billion. It sounds like an awfully large sum of money. But if you think about it, in 2020, the UK's housing stock reached a valuation in total of £7.56 trillion. Pounds. Um, uh, and we've spent a lot on all kinds of things in the last year. Uh, so therefore, is it really such a high price to pay to update our housing, which is unequivocally the worst in Europe, uh, and meet our 2035 domestic emissions targets? Um, is this something we should just go for? Aaron, a very brief word. Yes, it's not a lot of money, Merlin, in the great scheme of things. It's not. We spend, as you say, fortunes on absurd projects, whether it's HS2, um, a pet hate, or many others like that. They run into billions and billions and billions of pounds and across even more billions as they're built. So um, it, the, the difficulty is really is that individual households can't really be expected to pay all this money the number of well, very wealthy or rich households in a city like London, let alone the rest of the country, is actually very small. It's tiny. Most people have very average incomes. Most people, a lot of people have very little income. So you, they can't do it. So you need an, 
a proper strategy. It's got to be a city-wide strategy or a national strategy to tackle it. It's a bit like having a, a national grid or a tube system in London or something like that. You have to say to everybody, you know, this is something we need to do as a city or a country and we want you all to be involved, but um, you will get, you know, proper grants to do this. I think right at the moment we're at now, I mean, obviously there's a lot of debate around what this transformation could look like. And typically in the media, it focuses a lot on things like ground source heat pumps, um, which is maybe a, bit, maybe a bit of a distraction. Maybe it's really important. Um, but one of the things uh, that is also you know, clearly important is things like um, internal insulation or external insulation. Um, and there's a sort of question of like, you know, what could this look like architecturally? Um, could retrofitting a Victorian terrace be extremely exciting? Um, you know, could it be a re uh, an aesthetic revolution and are we ready for it? Uh, or is this, is, is this sort of thing exactly the sort of reason why we haven't actually found a way to solve this problem? Well, here you are, you're, you know, you're talking to lots of young architects and your programme and it, it, that is part of the key. You want people to come up with ideas for this. You know, there's no obvious solution at the moment apart from, you know, slapping insulation on the outside or inside of buildings. And that'd probably be awful to look at and, you know, to live in if you just do it in a hurry. Um, I know there's this there's a hurry um, under pressure to do things, but it's worth a little bit of time to have people to look at it. And I think actually really intelligent competitions um, bringing in young engineers and architects working together to think these things through. Um, about just immediately after the Second World War with Victorian housing, um, in the East End, lots and lots of terrace housing were badly hit. And that was partly excuse, um, uh, apart from any interest the governments had in construction industry, getting that going, in building new types of estates with the big high-rise buildings and so on. Um, but there were alternative proposals at the time, which I'm sure you know about, um, for rebuilding those terraced houses with pl almost plug-in bathroom kitchen units that would go in the backyards. So you prefabricate them, brilliant idea really, and just sort of slot it in so people could have their old-fashioned London street life again. You know, the kids can kick the football around in the street. People, people could talk to each other from their front doors. And at the back, they would have modern heating, kitchen, bathroom, lavatory, all that stuff, which they didn't have or they shared or just not very sanitary. Um, so, I mean, what I'm thinking of, so there are these different ways of thinking about things. And that's what architects can really, really help. Come and say, you know, come and think, what could be done? And so you may have a solution where you say, um, to answer another of your questions, buildings don't have to change the way they look at all, you know, from the street. Might not have to. Um, again, let's have a intelligent discussion about that and perhaps competitions to see architects and engineers coming up with solutions. Our next story has stayed surprisingly absent uh, from London media headlines. It's a really shocking story. Uh, we're covering it on London. Um, there's only been a few articles appearing in things like East End Enquirer and My London. Um, it's all to do with the residents of Clare House in Bow. Uh, they've been subject to an emergency eviction by the housing association Clarion. Uh, after inspections revealed uh, the building could not be kept safe without major refurbishment or demolition. Uh, so on the 29th of September, all 120 
20 households of the East London Tower Block, which overlooks Victoria Park, received letters instructing them to permanently vacate the building over the course of just a few days. Um, the shock followed the receipt of a fire safety report from an engineering advisory consultancy, uh, which stated the building uh, was not safe. Um, residents have requested full access uh, to this fire and structural safety report. Uh, however, Clarion has so far refused, um, arguing the information contained inside is commercially sensitive. Um, so this former council block uh, was constructed using the large panel system, it's known as LPS. Um, it's a construction method where large slabs of prefabricated concrete are bolted together. Now, LPS buildings became notorious uh, following the Ronan Point disaster in the 1960s, not too far away, uh, where an East London Tower block partially collapsed. Um, following the eviction, residents were housed in temporary accommodation and then before Clarion promised to then permanently relocate them. Uh, in a letter to residents, the Housing Association said it would, quote, do our best to match you with the area you prefer, although that will depend on availability. Um, it went on to say that priority will be given to families with children in local schools and nurseries um, and that those who have care needs um, will also be given priority in terms of local housing. Um, residents will have a maximum of three formal offers uh, for a new home. Um, so, Jonathan, it's difficult to say exactly what's happening here, as obviously Clarion have um, kept some of the information back. Um, but why is this such a big story in uh, London's built environment? Uh, and why should we and our listeners, who, as you reference, include a lot of architects, um, be paying a lot of attention uh, to the sort of this sort of story? Well, firstly, it's pretty clear. I mean, this has been very badly handled, the whole affair. And one can't help feeling really sorry for the residents. I mean, it is a dismal thing to do to a very short notice to chop people out of not just the building, it's their home. And the other thing is the concern is why exactly? And so we all need to know what this report says, and we don't know what this report says. Is the building as dangerous as Ronan Point you cited, which collapsed after a gas explosion in 1968, or not? Um, but that, does that building really have to be demolished? Now, I I asked this by reference to the fact I looked up local estate agents uh, yesterday, and I found this very interesting. I found this of a local estate agency in Bow, which has just let, um, obviously a few weeks ago, just let a lovely two-bedroomed, generously planned 13th floor flat in where? In Clare House. And it has lovely views of the Regent's Canal, the River Lee and Victoria Park, um, and it says bathed in natural light throughout the property, blah, blah, blah. Clare House, this is good, is a secure development with 24-hour concierge set on the cusp of the fantastic green spaces of Victoria Park and Lauriston Village, which I'd say village, of course. So you won what I wondered then instantly, should that building be replaced by one that is much nicer with its with nice oak floors and Eames furniture and nice flowers and capitalising on the balconies and the views across the Canary Wharf. It would make a hell of a lot of money because you can say that the building is now in a remarkably interesting area. I mean, only a few years ago, that's a rough part of London, very poor part of London. Still is in parts, but it has developed on the Hackney side and that has spread through. So um, is this a bit of real estate development happening at the expense of these people? I don't know. I mean, but I, how do we know until we read that report? And then if you'd read the report, would you trust it? 
of course and obviously um you know, Cl- clarion have yet to sort of give more details on this so we're going to look out for that um, eagerly our next story is all to do with westminster's highly criticized marble arch mound we've covered it many times on the london before and it is in the headlines once again with the AJ reporting that MVRDV, the practice behind the installation, was picked without a contest. Uh, an internal review being carried out by Westminster City Council has revealed that procurement rules were waived in order to hand the Netherlands-based architects the £10,000 project uh, without approaching any other firms to get quotes. Um, the mound, which has already been criticised for its very loose resemblance to its original marketing CGIs uh, and also for running 81% or £2 million over budget uh, was awarded to MVRDV without the required competitive tender process. Um, This is despite Westminster's procurement code saying that the council should invite a minimum of three suppliers to give quotes for contracts worth over £10,000, including a quote from a supplier who is based in the borough uh, or or an SME uh, or a social enterprise. Um, So a representative from Westminster Council said to the AJ, quote, uh, that the architect of Marble Arch Mound was procured by asking it to submit a quotation for the commission. Uh, The quote goes on, this was because of the architect's experience in designing high impact temporary interventions um, and also its capacity to deliver the required short timescales. As such, the council waived the requirement to seek competitive tenders um, and this was in accordance with the procurement code. So that was their statement. Uh, Now, the temporary visitor attraction, which is due to be deconstructed in January, uh, was proposed as a means of encouraging visitors to return to the Oxford Street area following a series of lockdowns during the pandemic. Um, The internal report into the failings of the mound found that £2 million of cost overruns were caused by the changing scope during the construction of the visitor attraction, um, quote, particularly in relation to the extent and complexity of the scaffold and sedum roof structure. Um, So, Jonathan, what's what's this story all about? What's the big deal? And why is it so important that architects for major projects like this are actually selected uh, through a fair, sort of open, competitive process? Well, the first thing, Merlin, is that the scheme is a load of rubbish. I mean, almost literally, it's surrounded by rubbish bins and railings, and then it's got these patchy bits of bare grass going up. And uh, you can't imagine anyone paying to climb a steel ladder up to... uh, up for what? You can hardly see over the trees. I mean, it's a ridiculous idea. So it's a piece of junk. And um, that is the major thing that's wrong with it in a way. But the procurement process, I agree, when you raise hackles about that, it's wrong. I mean, they could have asked several people to come up with something. And again, by asking several people, what's always good about that is that you get very different views very different schemes and it gives you a real choice of what might work or not you might having seen them all say no to a lot of them you know and just not do it which i think might have been the best scheme here at marble arch dismal thing i think a lot of um we've seen this over years councils and city authorities uh have been slightly um overawed by um architects who are good at producing a wacky scheme and it's sort of a good time to stop it because the wacky things actually work a lot better just organized by people with whether it's parades or music or theater concerts keep going you know people are perfectly capable of of enlivening their city do you remember that great elephant the artificial elephant mechanical elephant that came down to london absolutely terrific or if you see the household cavalry riding down the mall past st james's park with its pelicans and gas lamps all these things are just utterly delightful and and playful and this great lump just was utterly 
grim, but the serious point about it is it just should not have happened as it did in terms of procurement. When I'm thinking about you know, this particular project, it's been in construction, um, been in the news the entire time it's been in, under construction. Um, but and, and even beyond the kind of architecture spheres, it's seen as a, as a massive flop. Um, and I was just thinking, is in your career as an architecture critic, um, you must have come across a few, quite a few spectacular failures. Um, how does could you name a few, and how does this one compare? Well, the the one most spectacular of all, of course, we all know, which was the Garden Bridge. I mean, I, it, it's it was so ridiculous. Um, a bridge is a means from getting from across a space, a, a ravine of some sort, a river, a chasm, um, or between buildings, a, a bridge that's designed to stop you getting across, to hang out in in cafes and concerts and gardens is not a very good idea. Old London Bridge, the one, the medieval one, was always a bit of a nightmare um, because tra- it held up traffic and uh, it annoyed people then and it held up the flow of the river um, as well, causing a lot of ice flows. It meant you could skate on the Thames in, in the winter. That's quite fun, I agree. But, you know, it, it's a for commerce and trade, for traffic, it was a, a disaster. So on a practical level, it was a grim thing. But the worst thing really was the way it was, for me, more than anything, more than the cost, more than the fact it was a vanity project, was this unbridled hype that went on for ages to begin with, that this was something totally marvellous. And any of us that dared to criticise it, you know, we was somehow evil, I think, partly because it was fronted by um, the lovely Joanna Lumley, of who indeed is lovely and no criticism can be made of her as a person. I mean, she's great, but it's the scheme. And then the fact it was pushed through by um, Bojo, the um, bonkers mayor of London, you know, who loved, as we know, these vanity projects. Uh, and this was one of them. And it was a disaster in every way. Um, and I must say, uh, the Architects' Journal... Um, and Will Hurst in particular deserve huge credit for being onto the case of this and really fighting it through to the end. And then finally, the Margaret Hodges report came out, which just hammered it and to death. And the current mayor, Sadiq Khan, just pulled the rug under it. Next up, we have a story all about zebra crossings. It was reported in The Guardian this week. Polling has revealed that the introduction of more low-cost zebra crossings would encourage more walking. Um, Three-quarters of parents, for example, said they would be more likely to walk their primary-age children to school if such markings were in place. Ministers are being urged to allow paint-only crossings after a study in Manchester found that when the markings were installed, 70% of drivers stopped for people waiting to cross, um, whereas normally only about 40% uh, would stop for people waiting to cross. Um, There's groups including Living Streets, guide dogs ramblers and the aa have called uh, for these paint only zebra crossings to be introduced um even the transport commissioner of greater manchester uh, the former olympic and tour de france uh, cyclist chris boardman uh, has spent more than two years trying to persuade the department for transport to approve the idea um currently uk law stipulates that zebra crossings must have zigzag markings along the road both before and after as well as flashing lights on poles. And that brings the cost of the whole enterprise up to about £40,000 per installation. Uh, by contrast, this simpler version, uh, including just the basic stripes painted on the road, a fixture you could find in many European cities, um, it would cost an estimated £1,000 uh, per crossing. 
Andy Berman, who's the mayor of Greater Manchester, said, quote, every year in the UK, around two billion trips under one mile are made by car. And that's the equivalent of 15 minute walk or a five minute bike ride. Um, he said those trips by car are releasing approximately 680,000 tonnes of carbon. We want to see if a method used widely across the world could offer us a practical and cost effective option to make crossing side roads safer and importantly, feel safer. So, Jonathan, what do you make of this? Do you think the introduction of more zebra crossings could help redress this balance between cars and people, which is obviously so fraught and so much a focus of all our discussions about cities these days? Yeah, my answer is yes, um, and I think it's a great idea. I think what's so good about it is that when you're, if you're a motorist, um, you do notice zebra crossings as you drive. You just do, because, of course, they... And they disrupt the eye as the eye glides along tarmac. So that's pretty good. For pedestrians, it's a safety, a safe zone. It tells them where they should be able to cross safely, and I'm sure they'll be sighted sensibly. And the third thing, which I think is absolutely terrific, is that there's no cluttered design to go with them. That thing you said about um, pedestrian crossings require zigzag lines, usually with double yellow lines a bit further on, and then flashing lights and signs. And, you know, you could go on forever with these things. And uh, you can walk through parts of the city in London or any other British city now and lovely views or basic views of streets or and, you know, grand views of grand historic bits are really spoiled by just this endless, endless clutter. Jonathan, it's been an immense pleasure to feature you on the London this week. I hope you can join us again in the future. Um, where should our listeners turn to find out about things you're working on, projects, new publications, broadcasting? Crikey, very quite difficult in a way because I don't do social media. I'm working on a couple of architecture books now. And just remind our listeners, um, what's the, what's the most recent publication? If they well, the most recent actually is a very simple one. Actually, it's um I was asked to write a book which I really enjoyed writing, and it's much more fascinating to write than I thought it would. It's the history of the Anglepoise lamp. I'm sitting here talking to you now under the light of an Anglepoise, a veteran Anglepoise lamp. And what I like about them is that they are these um, evergreen tools simple as a you know, Swiss Army penknife, um, which I love too, but will last and endure for decades. And these lamps are so great. They're a lovely bit of engineering and they're not fancy design in any way, um, but they're endearing and quite endearing too. Fantastic. Well, thank you for being on the show uh, once again and hope to feature you on the show again soon. Thanks very much, Merlin. Thank you. You've been listening to The Lundown, if you enjoy the show, on the 13th of November, we're doing a live on-stage recording at 6A's South London Gallery, and we'd love to see you there. It's a slightly more satirical, slightly more humorous version of the show than what we put out every week, but I think you'll really enjoy it, so please come along. There'll be a star panel, and it starts at 3pm on Saturday. Tickets are available at open-city.org.uk. It'd be great to see you there. Thank you for listening. Open City is dedicated to making London more open accessible and equitable.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.